This is Rick Bino from Hocassin Baptist Church, and you are listening to From Shadow to Substance, a series of teachings from the book of Hebrews, preached in the spring of 2008. Today's sermon is entitled, Therefore, Run the Race. It's great to see you here this morning, and welcome back to our continuing series from the book of Hebrews entitled From Shadow to Substance, and we're actually coming to the end of our teaching time from the book of Hebrews. We only have a few more sermons left. We are up to Hebrews chapter 11 and the first few verses of chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews 11 and 12. As you know, we've been organizing our discussions kind of around one of the ways that you can divide up the book of Hebrews, and that is that the, book, that the writer writes an argument and then has an application, an argument and an application. And the connecting word between the argument and the application is therefore. So we've been dividing up our teachings with um, what is the teacher's and the writer's argument and then what is the corresponding therefore. Uh, but today I'm going to kind of switch it up a little bit on you, and we're going to look at the therefore first, and then we're going to go back and look at the teaching. Okay, can you handle this? You're right with that? Okay, good. Um, So we're going to start in actually Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, which is the therefore of the whole argument from chapter 11. So look with me at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and then we'll go back and work our way through Hebrews 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary." And lose heart. I personally am not much of a runner. And to be totally honest, I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't get runners. I don't get it. People who run, and that's what they do. 5Ks, marathons, they run long distances, and then they run back. I don't get running. So I'm not the best person, I don't think, to come up with great illustrations about running. But I do know this, is that if you don't finish, you can't win. You can't get the prize or the medal or the award if halfway through the race you decide to pack it up and go home. Particularly with long-distance running, the key is to persevere. The key is to put your eyes on the goal and you just keep on running. And this is clearly the kind of image that the writer is using here when he says, run with perseverance the race marked out in front of you. Keep on running. Keep on going. Keep on putting one foot in front of the other. And surely there is something in your life, a task, a burden, a relationship, a situation, There's something in your life where it takes every ounce of your energy to just keep going. And it's for you that the writer says, but look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, 
who endured and persevered the suffering of the cross and look to him to encourage you to not give up. But how do we do it? How do we not give up? Well, if I were a runner, I would have a really cool illustration right now of something you do as a runner to help you to not give up. I'm not a runner, as I've said. I'm the guy that stopped halfway through and decided I didn't want the prize. So I got nothing in terms of those kind of illustrations. But the passage, fortunately, comes right after Hebrews 11, which is a long catalog or a long legacy of believers who have not given up. It starts off, therefore, in verse 1 of 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and when we see this great cloud of witnesses, and we see all these other people in chapter 11, and Jesus himself, who have persevered and who have endured, we look at them and we say, maybe this is possible. Maybe people actually have lived through the situation I'm wrestling with right now. And maybe people have even thrived through this situation that I'm in right now. And so the encouragement that the writer of Hebrews says, if you're discouraged, if you feel like you're going to give up, if you feel like you need encouragement to persevere, then look at those who have succeeded. Look at those who have persevered. Look at those who have endured. They are cheering you on. And the reason they were able to endure is the same reason that will allow us to endure, and that is faith. And it's the subject of faith that the writer develops in chapter 11 in preparation for this encouragement in chapter 12. And so it is to faith in the chapter 11 that we look now. When I introduced our Hebrews series back in late March, I quoted a, a commentator who said this. He says, we claim to be people of the word, Christians, claim to be people of the word, but in reality we are people of only parts of the word. And there's large parts of it, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that we're actually very unfamiliar with. And as we've gone through these first lessons in Hebrews, and as we work through the high priest and the tabernacle and Melchizedek, you probably have sensed this is indeed information that I am somewhat unfamiliar with. But then you might look down at chapter 11, and you might feel a sense of comfort and relief, maybe a sense of familiarity. Because it's quite likely that if you had no connection or recollection of the book of Hebrews, that you had some familiarity with chapter 11 and some of the verses in it about faith. It's sometimes called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's filled with the lives of Old Testament people, and it honors them for their faith. So we have a familiar chapter, but it's filled with familiar names. Names far more familiar than Melchizedek. Names like Abraham and Noah and Isaac and Moses. And so we have sort of a familiar passage filled with familiar names, talking about a word that is very familiar in our Christian lives. Faith. You don't need to be in church for very long or read the Bible very much to be introduced to the idea of faith. And so with this familiar passage and these familiar names and this familiar concept of faith, we might want to settle in and relax this morning. 
kind of like slipping into those old, comfortable pair of slippers. But I want to encourage you not to settle in too quickly. There's an old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I'm not sure that our familiarity with the idea of faith would breed contempt, but it could very well breed ignorance of the true nature of faith. It could very well breed a sense of laziness towards developing our faith. It might be said that a typical Christian's familiarity with faith breeds a worn-out understanding of faith. Not unlike those favorite slippers, which, though familiar, are too small and full of holes. And so I ask us all to approach this discussion of this familiar concept, concept of faith and these familiar names from this familiar passage by asking this question. Have I become so familiar and comfortable with my faith that it is now too small and full of holes? Now listen to the word of the Lord. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well at his offerings, and by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found, because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and gave instructions about his bones. By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell, after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. The other day I was heading to meet somebody for breakfast at Panera Bread over here on Kirkwood Highway. And the way I take to Panera Bread is the same way I take uh, to church for about the first 10 minutes. But then you have to go one direction for Panera Bread and one direction, a different direction for the church. Well, on this particular morning, I found myself only a few moments from church when it dawned on me that I wasn't supposed to be going to church. Has ever, this ever happened to you? You end up at the wrong place? It can be very frustrating. But it's the kind of thing that I can think can happen to our faith. It becomes such familiar territory that we end up following certain mindsets and certain understandings about faith that end up taking us to the wrong place. 
So I want to use this passage this morning to help clarify what I feel are some misunderstandings or some misconceptions that even Christians often have about faith. And then offer some correctives from using this passage. So our first inadequate understanding of faith is this, that faith refuses to question. Faith, like other conceptual ideas, are typically very difficult to define. Dictionary definitions tend to fall short of capturing what it actually means to love or to have peace or to have friendship. But the dictionary definition, I think, or many dictionary definitions, do a really horrible job with faith. Here's one typical definition of faith. Faith is the unquestioning belief that is not based on proof. The unquestioning belief that is not based on proof. And though this is the dictionary's definition of faith, I think that a lot of us also tend to believe, at least the unquestioning part. We tend to believe that if we question God about what's going on in our lives, that we somehow are showing a lack of faith. And that can cause us a lot of stress, a lot of spiritual stress. But I think if you look through the names of the people on this list from Hebrews 11, we'll discover that questioning is simply not the opposite of faith. Faith and questioning are not opposite of one another. We might even go so far as to say that questioning represents much of what it means to have faith. For it's in asking questions that we so often will discover truth. That's how you did it in school. And the same could be true of faith. So if you look over this list, you'll find that these people, these very epitomes of faith, they not only asked questions, but these were some of the people that outright challenged God. Jacob, mentioned in verse 21, wrestles with God until he receives a blessing. Abraham, whose story begins in verse 11, he bargained with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Moses, from verse 23. It was Moses who, who after the Hebrew people once again rebelled, God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. The Hebrew people will be gone. And Moses said to God, he, he, he argues with God, he, he wrestles with God, he says, God, if if you destroy all the Israelites, then won't the Egyptians say, oh, their God took them to the desert just to kill them? And you wouldn't want that reputation, would you? And two verses later it says, and God relented and did not bring about the disaster he had promised. Gideon puts out fleeces in, continuing, in a continual need for signs. And David, mentioned in verse 32, lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you go through this catalog of people, you do not find a list of people who do not question God. You find a group of people who wrestle with God, who, who, who uh, struggle and ask God. And so I think we find that questioning is actually part and parcel of the establishment of a good faith. So don't discourage yourself with thoughts like, I have a lot of questions for God, I must not have any faith. The fact of the matter is, your willingness to take your questions to God may very well be a sign of great faith. Righteous faith. 
That being said, however, we should correct this misunderstanding with a solution. Faith, refuses to, uh, faith does not refuse to question, but faith does refuse to panic. In the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, faith is a refusal to panic, come what may. You see, there's a difference between going before God and saying, God, I'm wrestling with this, I'm struggling with this, why is this happening to me or my family or my child? It's been happening for so long, Lord, can you give me answers? I'm seeking you is a different posture than, <laughs> There was two different postures there, right? One was one of questioning, one was one of seeking, the other was one of panic, that God's not in control, he doesn't love me, he doesn't know what's going on, I'm lost all by myself, I'm crazy over all this. That's panic. And that's a lack of faith. But questioning God is not. In verses 13 through 16, we sort of get a glimpse of what these people's mindset was and what's not one of panic. It says that they admitted they were aliens and strangers on this earth. They weren't, they weren't enamored or obsessed with everything going on around them, but they were looking forward to a better country, a better future. And so they were able to remain confident in the stress and difficulties and trials of their lives. And as a result, there's this great line at the end of verse 16, one that I would, I would just love to have said about us and our, our congregation and each of you. It says that God was not ashamed to be called their God. My prayer is that God would not be ashamed to be called our God. Well, that definition I gave you earlier, it's bad on both halves. It, called it, it said that faith was an unquestioning Belief that is not based on proof. Well, I think that is, again, a misconception of faith. If there is no proof, then we are believing in a fantasy, a dream, a non-reality. Earlier this week, Steve, our life group leader, was talking to my son, Nathan, who's eight. Steve was asking him, does he like to read? And Nathan said, yes. And Steve said, what kind of books do you like to read? And Nathan says, I like books that aren't real. To which both Steve and I went and did one of these. Okay. And, uh, and Nathan noticed our confusion, and he said, you know, books where, you know, like the story doesn't actually happen. Well, he doesn't quite figure out the word for fiction, but what he was trying to say is he likes fiction. Obviously, the book is real. But you know, many of the perceptions of our faith, and sometimes even of Christians, is that faith is believing in something that's not real. But that's not faith. A.W. Tozer says this, faith is seeing the invisible, not the non-existent. We don't see fantasies and phantasms, oh, it doesn't really exist, but I see it. No, we see the invisible, not the unreal. If you look at 11, verse 1, you'll see one of the more common, maybe quote-unquote, definitions of faith, maybe a description of faith. It's a very difficult passage, actually, to translate. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You may be familiar with the King James translation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. On the screen behind me, you can see the many different ways these 
these two key words, very difficult to translate, have been translated. The word translated as uh, substance has also been translated as reality, assurance, confidence. The word translated evidence has been translated proof, conviction, or assurance. It's interesting to me that the word proof shows up in, in an understanding of faith. Now, as I said, there's a lot of complications with, uh, with understanding this verse. I personally, I personally like the idea and the understanding that faith is a substance of things hoped for. It's probably not, a, even though it's an older translation, it's actually not a bad attempt at sort of capturing this idea of faith because it's real. Faith is real. But no matter how you translate those words that have some similarity to them, I think the, the one part of the truth is clear, is that faith does not lack proof. But I do think that faith redefines proof. You see, we, we have sort of tended to have a limited understanding of proof in our day and age. And it's usually very scientific. Right? Prove it to me means I have to see it, I have to be able to measure it, it needs to be repeatable. I need to observe it. That's what we mean by proof. It's a pretty limited definition. We have this saying, the proof is in the pudding. Have you heard this saying? You realize it makes no sense, don't you? Right? So if you've ever said it, you need to, you need to shake your head in sorrow. The proof is in the pudding. What does that mean? Well, what I think it shows is our, our uh, obsession with proof even to the point that we've destroyed what used to be a sensible saying. Because the saying, the proof is in the pudding, is actually a messed up, shortened version of the actual saying, which is this. The proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. Oh, see? You see that noise? (laughs) It makes sense then, doesn't it? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. So now the next time you use it, you can use it correctly. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And that makes sense. What is the proof of faith? It's your life. It's my life. It's changed hearts. It's changed perspectives. It's new hope. I know these things can't be measured. I know if you go to one of the labs down at Wilmington that they're not going to be able to measure the amount of hope that you have in your life, but that doesn't make it less proof of the reality of faith. But our culture, not unlike other cultures in the past, though for different reasons, is often unwilling to open our eyes to things not seen. I've got to see it to believe it. And so the Bible doesn't offer a lot of measurable scientific geometric proofs, but it does broaden our understanding what it means to have proof. What is the proof that drives our faith? the experience that ourselves and others have with faith. No wonder this definition of faith that says that it has substance follows with a long list of people who've lived out faith. You want proof of your faith? Look at Abel. Look at Noah. Look at Abraham. Look at Moses. Look at Gideon. And the list could go on and on, as the writer indicates. I don't have time to tell about everybody. You need proof of the reality of faith? Look around you. The room's full of proof. The proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. 
If you want proof that the pudding is good, what do you have to do? You have to eat it. If you want proof that faith is good, you've got to experience it. Well, the Bible doesn't use the phrase, the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. But it does say, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, we have seen that the idea that faith refuses to question is inaccurate, though we do want to affirm that faith refuses to panic. We have seen that faith lacks proof is inaccurate, though we do want to realize that faith redefines proof beyond what many people conceive of it, which is pretty narrow. And our last misunderstanding of faith that I think this passage corrects is the idea that faith brings success. Or to put it another way, this idea that, that we sometimes, especially as Christians, walk around with saying, if I had enough faith, then my life would be better and smoother, and I wouldn't have as many trials and difficulties, so therefore I must be lacking in faith. If I just had more faith, more good things would happen. Well, now these misperceptions are not wholly incorrect, because Jesus does rebuke his disciples for not having enough faith. He says to the disciples, if you had just the smallest amount of faith, you could move mountains. So I affirm that there might be times in your life where you're struggling because you lack faith. I'm not denying that at all. But I think we need to be careful if we attribute every trial and every difficulty in our lives to a lack of faith. That every hard thing that comes up, we go, oh, I must lack faith. If I just had more faith, things would get better. You might look at verses 33 through 35 and say, look what it did for these people. They conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut mouths of lions, quenched the flames, escaped the sword, received the dead back to life. That's successful faith, we might say. That's what my life ought to be all the time. But the writer clearly does not want us to have this understanding because the passage continues, doesn't it? By faith, all these great things happened. But then he goes on and says, By faith, others were tortured, flogged, sawed in two, persecuted, mistreated. Well, who had the faith? Those whose lives were characterized by quote-unquote success or those whose lives ended tragically and violently? I think the writer wants to say, well, they both had faith. So faith is clearly not some magic formula that we sprinkle on our lives and then say everything is going to be great. There's going to be no trials or difficulties. The reality of it is far more complex than that. And so I encourage you to please, please be careful about beating yourself up for lacking faith just because there's difficulties in your life. I think the complexity and the mystery is shown when I was studying this passage. It just struck me so significantly, if you look at verse 34, he's talking about the quote-unquote successful people, right? Those who escaped. And he says, some escaped the edge of the sword. Through faith, some escaped the edge of the sword. And then he goes down to verse 37. Through faith, some were put to death by the sword. Through faith, some escaped the sword. Through faith, some were put to death by the sword. Clearly, the circumstances of your life are not necessarily direct indications of the power or the validity of your faith. And I think many of you would agree 
that some of the people who I know who have the most trials and the most difficulties have more faith than I could ever muster. To correct this mindset, I want to use a phrasing that I learned from uh, the Youth for Christ national president. He said this, let's leave behind the idea that faith brings success and understand that faith brings significance. All of these people, whether they lived or died, whether they went through hard trials or easier trials, whether they were, they were successful in overturning kingdoms or the kingdoms took their lives, they may have been successful or unsuccessful in terms of sort of a world's view, but all of them lived lives that were significant. How different would our lives be? How different would our faith be if we were pursuing not success, but significance. People who have made the decision to pursue goodness, to serve God, and to fix our eyes on Jesus and the holy city yet to come. And so my prayer for us, my prayer for you, is that people would look at your life And they would look at you and they would say, that person's operating by the rules of another world. They're not not following the same rules I'm following. They're going after something different. The very last line, the very sort of last statement we heard read today, when talking about all of these who had lost their lives, it says that the world was not worthy of them. I love that line. They were so good. They were so godly. They were so holy. They were so in touch with their Savior that God almost, it's almost like God said, come on home. The world's not even worthy of of you. And I'd like to see our mindsets be one where people look at us and say, man, they are of another world. And And when they ask you, they say, how do you do it? How do, you, how do you survive through such trials? How do you survive through such difficulties? How do you make it through without panicking? And that we would be able to say, I make it because I am certain of what I do not see. May God bless our time and his word this morning.